the India education dream backed by tech is not a noble or a new idea to the business ecosystem. It date backs over four decades to 1981, with NIIT being set up by Rajendra Pawar and Vijay Thadani, which then suffered its own share of setbacks during the dot-com bust. Ten years after NIIT, an IMA graduate Shantanu Prakash made a go at it and established a company called Educom. But sadly, that company was more in the news for fraud and bankruptcy than spreading tech literacy. Cut to now. Baiju's Ravindran steps on the scene nearly two decades ago. The small-town boy who cracked the cat had all the ingredients and more importantly, the timing to make EdTech a billion-dollar reality in India. Launching the app in 2015, just as India's demand for smartphones jumped over 100 million units to the big rush of 2020 as the pandemic pushed learning online for everyone, timing was clearly Baiju's best friend. But as they say, hawa ko ruk badalte deer nahi lagti. Changing economic climate, flawed business procedures and an over-aggressive expansion is leaving the emperor with no new clothes. With auditors and directors fleeing, lenders banging on the doorstep, many are questioning what is the next chapter in the Baiju's book. As a finance expert will tell us during the episode, debt, especially from international lenders, will prove to be its death knell. Indian startups specifically are in the mode of burning money and not generating money. Startups are not suited for debt, especially if they're international lenders. You cannot imagine the kind of terms that they will add to the, or clauses they will add to the documentation. Other than signing out your life, entire life, everything else will be put in there. So the limitations or covenants actually become a bitch. They're literally like nose on your neck. It's Thursday, July 6th from the Economic Times. I'm your host, Anupriya Nair, and with me, my colleague Salman from ET Prime will get your deep dive on Baiju's, the educator who got schooled in this episode of The Morning Brief. It was a great cloud of uncertainty at Baiju's, not just among the reporters that were grappling for any information, but also among employees who were unsure, who have seen rounds of layoffs, ED raids, MCA complaints, on what is the next chapter for the EdTech giant. Salman takes us behind the scenes to Ground Zero. Around last week, what my sources told me is that Baju and the VR flew down from Dubai and uh, ended up in the Bangalore headquarters. To just to go and meet his CEO, the first thing on his books was go and meet a CEO, Al Moet. After that, I think they decided to have a proper chat with the employees through a town hall. Uh, the original idea of the town hall was to take questions from employees. But uh, what I hear from one employee is that as soon as the town hall started, there were a barrage of questions and then they disabled the question menu and they did not take any questions. But what were the questions like? Most of the questions were on the layoffs situation, right? whether our jobs are safe, do we plan to do any more layoffs? And of course, these other questions were on funding and the third questions were on term loan. So the questions were mostly on these three things. But during that entire town hall, Mr. Ravindran did not mention anything or touch upon the layoff situation. He did not explain why they're laying off again or what would be the cost-cutting measures. He did not go into those details, but he did go into everything else. Like, you know, he stressed that he will find new board members. He stressed that the term loan issue will be solved in a matter of weeks and they will be more accountable in the future. There were just promises, but he did not specifically share any financial targets, nothing financial in nature. 
he did not use any financial language during the call. Uh, of course, this kind of was disappointing for employees, and because most of them expected him to be a little apologetic, is what the employees told me. Apologizing, however, is not in the Baiju playbook, who has kept a steadfast "the show must go on" motto. The last two years, we made so many acquisitions. It was not just organic growth. When we saw an opportunity that the online learning is suddenly becoming popular, not just in India but all over the world, we made uh, some really good acquisitions. Now that came with the complexities of integrating those companies and one-time acquisition costs. Like 2020, we were uh, we were almost profitable. So it was when we were growing organically for the first five years. It was not growth at any cost. It was never like that. First ten years we were bootstrapped from 2005 to 2015. So it's in our DNA to if you want to switch back to. Efficient, profitable growth, where like when those two years when cheap capital was available, everyone was chasing growth. If we were not doing that, we won't be in this position today. We are in a very good position. I know we have gone through six, eight challenging months, but on the other side of it, the worst is over. But the Baiju show had a blockbuster opening when Baiju Ravindran, who set out to disprove the phrase "those who can do, those who can't teach," as my colleague Salman recalls. So I would take back that Baiju started way back in 2011. Although he was known as a very well-known teacher, filling halls full of NET grads and JE grads looking to get into JE. But he started Baiju as a YouTube channel in 2011, where he did videos by himself. He used to self-record videos and animated some of his very famous videos on uh, maths and physics. There was this one particular video which he uploaded first. It's on quadratic equations, and he the way he explains it on a graph was quite impressive. He did not get into an online edtech kind of a format until 2014. His first funding was in 2013. Series A was in 2013 March 2013. It was a very small funding of just 10 million, and it was led by Arin Capital and bunch of angel investors who were not named. But that was just the starting point of what would be a funding deluge. But at questionable multiples. Yeah, so the first round in 2013 was a very small round, and the valuation was at around 30 million. So the Series A was at 30 million. This was in line with almost all Series A rounds in that year. Uh, nothing very large, but I mean, as they grew, they were able to kind of do their sales-heavy technique in getting into even visiting houses and doing on-ground sales. They are a large team, and. By the time they showed that their sales machinery was quite effective, and they when they produced this investors, I think they were quite impressed. But one thing is just looking at the metrics. So how do you understand valuation? Is looking at the revenue multiple. So in Series B, their revenue multiple was 15x of revenue. Now that is of course a little higher. Not many companies get 15x. Their valuation at that point was still 140 million. 36 million was raised at 140 million and. A multiple of 15x, and slowly we have seen these multiples like going up to 22x, 17x, and it was between 17 to 24 throughout following funding rounds, and it hit the maximum I think at almost 45, 50x in this series F. The series F was one of their largest rounds, and it was almost more than a billion dollars. One of those. People who kickstarted Series F was in Atlantic and Powell Ventures, and then we had Qatar Investment Authorities and Tiger Global, TST Global. There were like at least more than ten investors. Total liquidity funding would be around five point five billion dollars, and across twenty nine rounds, that is to date. 
It was in 2015 when Sequoia put in funds as India was starting its addiction to smartphones. Then came many feathers in the Baiju's cap, becoming the first Asian investment for Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, and then General Atlantic leading a $100 million round in 2018 that gave Baiju's the coveted billion-dollar unicorn mark, and in just four years, becoming India's most valued startup at a whopping $22 billion valuation. But the flood of funding into Baiju's was not purely because of its model. It was a combination of a lot of easy money slushing about at 0% interest rates and also because of this. More than 1,000 companies forced to close their doors following sweeping new education regulations. Tutoring companies can no longer teach compulsory school subjects, teach during school hours, nor earn a profit. In July 2021, China, which was touted to be a $100 billion edtech market, banned education companies from going public or making profits, which led to many funds who were looking to back booming online education during the pandemic to find a new home. And that resting place was India and its poster child, Baiju's. And in just four years, the valuation soared. So now the humble teacher hailing from Kerala is crowned the king of edtech and wants to spread his wings with his new shiny treasure chest. Mr. Baiju himself had made it very clear that they want to be a global edtech firm. And in order to do that, usually companies, what they do is either build internally or acquire externally. So his math was like, let's just buy companies which are are promising in US and that's what he did and I mean he has made around 19 acquisitions to date and uh, I mean some of the biggest are in US and India Uh, I mean he first entered the US market through an acquisition of Osmo which is like a gamified hardware based learning platform and he paid almost 120 million in cash and stock that is for Osmo then of course there are many other famous acquisitions like White Hat Junior which was 300 million and then there was uh, great learning for 600 million. Akash was 950 million. In fact, Baiju's over its 19 acquisitions and two investments spent over 2.8 billion dollars. In fact, during the pandemic, my daughter, who used to learn coding with White Hat Junior, got taken over by Baiju's. She used to use a reading app which was prescribed by her school, which was a US-based company called Epic, which again Baiju's bought out. And even a self-coding app, which my younger son used to tinker about with called Tinker, was also bought over Baiju's. So at one point in the pandemic, it really felt like Baiju's was just taking over. But as the brand and acquisition made headlines, another set of headlines crept up on social media, where Baiju's was accused of mis-selling and aggressive and unethical selling practices. So the trouble with accusations against unethical practices, like including how they uh, sold loans to parents unsuspectingly. I mean, this started in 2018, like very early and both Indian media and foreign media had scrutinized this. So the complaints were that sales officers would visit them face to face or even call and sell them course to their kids saying that if you do not buy this, uh, your kid might not really excel in, say, math or physics or might not excel in 10th standard. He may not or she may not be ready for 10th, 12th. So usually they would target K-12 students. But going to the crux of the complaint, it would be that um, they would promise you that try it as a trial for three months. If you don't like it, we will cancel the product. But there were a lot of complaints that 
despite the parents and the students raising for a cancellation, they would still see a debit charge on their accounts for the subscription. At the same time, the parents did not know that they were being sold a loan, which was one of the biggest accusations that the salespeople were not openly telling them or informing them this is a loan with a what is it with an ENAC component where it automatically debits from your account. And as Salman relays, Baiju's were not quick to course correct. They were very late in addressing these issues. They did not talk about it openly until a year later in 2019. What the management told me is that this is less than 2 to 5% of the cases. Less than 3% are mis-selling. He, I mean, the management did use the word mis-selling. But dismissing it as 3 to 5%, I mean, there's not really an evidence that it is 3% or was it 10% or was it all the loans being... But generally, these are not sold as education loans. These are sold as checkout financing loans, which is an MBFC in between selling the loan. And you do not have like a tax exemption or anything like this, like a, like how an education so, loan is sold. So management did kind of tune down uh, how sales is being led. And I think there were a lot of instructions that went from the management of the sales team to make it clear that they were selling a loan. And even if investors and onlookers gave the public outcry a miss, what could not be ignored was the fact that India's most valued startup with marquee investors and over a dozen acquisitions in the last year had still not filed its earnings. No one knew how Baiju's was really doing as a company. It was June of 2022 when the MCA came knocking on Baiju's door to remind them that it was over a year since their PNL was due with the regulator. A lot of startups do take their own time to file, but usually it does not go beyond 6-7 months. This was a case of 15 months. Actually, it went up to 16-17 months and we had MCA intervening, we had the public and people who are enthusiasts of tech and tech industry questioning Baiju's. And the official response from the Baiju's PR team was when when they actually came out with the FI21 financials, they did a huge press event and uh, Mr. Ravinder himself gave out interview to several outlets and what he said at that time is that we had made too many acquisitions in that year, which was right. He made almost eight acquisitions that year. Uh, so we took time and effort to amalgamate this into a consolidated financial. So he had to apparently hire uh, multiple auditors to get this done in time. But within the deadline that he set, which was September 2022, for the FI21 financial. Baiju Ravindran in his lesson plan for the company forgot to include a chapter for the CFO despite aggressive funding and acquisitions. And the numbers started to display what many were calling now Baiju's house of cards. Revenues from operation came in stagnant just over 2,000 crores. Meanwhile, revenue for rival edtech companies such as Unacademy and Vedantu, for example, rose almost 6x and 3x in the same period. The company's losses jumped to a whopping 4,500 crores compared to just 231 crores reported loss in 2020. If one does the calculation, that translates to the fact that Baiju's lost 12.5 crores every day till March 21. The India business was down a whopping 60% and the auditor Deloitte made note of revenue recognition practices that seemed out of the ordinary. And sales showed that they were more of a tech hardware company than an edtech service provider. One thing that was quite evident from the revenue breakdown was that a majority of it came from a sale of tablets, SD cards and tech-enabled devices, which was almost 81% of Baiju's revenue in FI21 was from 
hardware sales. And then rest was from streaming services and the course fee itself. So this kind of brought up questions that how is this an ed tech model when in fact your entire revenue is coming from just selling tablets. As losses went up nearly 20 times, Baiju's business promotion expenses saw an increase of almost 150% from the previous year. In fact, Baiju spent nearly 3x in marketing than its edtech peers, Unacademy, Vedantu and Upgrad combined. Where did the money go, one asks? Well, the Indian team jersey to IPL to celebrity brand endorsements from King Khan. And this expense, by the way, did not include the mega messy deal, which was signed and spent on in 2022. But while Baiju's was hoping that this big brand endorsements would show results, the winds of fortune were swiftly changing globally. The Federal Reserve raising its benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point to a new range of four and a quarter to four and a half percent. That is the highest level since December 2007. 2022 was the year when the chickens came home to roost for Baichu's. With the onset of the funding freeze and the vanishing pandemic, and course subscriptions getting cancelled across the board, Baichu's was now facing a faltering balance sheets with vacuums for working capital. Large-scale layoffs also were not altering the operational vortex from acquisitions that had failed to deliver. Baichu's needed funds, and it found it in a new corner. Debt. Leaving the traditional route of equity, Baiju Ravindran signed a term loan sheet just as rates were starting to rise. Last week, what he mentioned is that I don't care whether this is a funding winter or a funding summer, I will raise the next round and I'll continue to be the larger shareholder. Now, when I spoke to employees, asking them that how come this guy is able to bring in funding despite a winter or a summer, I mean, some people call him a musician, I mean, I mean, it is true. Like if you look at it, every year there's consistent funding coming in equity. I mean, even even during the funding winter, he did raise money. He did raise 250 million in debt. And so, although the money has not come in fully, he did get, get the term sheet, which is still surprising to many people who look at a tech and who look at Baiju's. But it is this very debt that is proving to be a death knell for Baiju's. Just as financials got more complicated, came a body blow. The auditor leaving as well as directors who were part of the company as its earliest investors. The first news that came out was that three directors stepping down uh, and the immediate reaction from Baiju's was, this is not true, this is speculation. And in just hours of that news breaking, Deloitte had submitted a letter to the MCA mentioning that, you know, we have not received PNL statements from the management. We have not received written off signed up statements from the management or from the finance team. So we are not able to complete this audit and hence we are stepping down. That's literally what they mentioned in the letter. The three directors were G.V. Ravish Shankar of Sequoia Capital and Vivian of uh, Chan Zuckerberg and Russell of Process. Now, these three are, in fact, the largest investors in Baiju's. Now, the reason as to why they stepped down, the official reason, we still don't know. But there are speculations in the market from as far as I understand speaking with investors is that when a company defaults its loan or does not pay its contractually mandated uh, interest payment, the directors will be held responsible for this too. And uh, I mean, the speculation is that to avoid this is why these three members had stepped down. Now, of course, one more thing that you have to notice is that these three are non-executive or non-promoters. Uh, they are not part of the company. Although they're investors, they're called as non-executive board members. And the rest three are 
remain are actually family members and they are executive directors. It's Divya Gugulnath, Riju Ravindran, and Baj Ravindran is his family members. And when I was reporting on my last story, what I understood is that Ravindran is currently on priority looking out for uh, onboarding new members to the board and it will mostly come from externally outside the company. Nobody from internally from the company would go to become board members. So this is what I understand. A lot of fixing underway from both seats to balance sheets. Many are calling the term loan taken by Baiju's the straw that could potentially break the camel's back. And here is why. It was November 2021 when Baiju's, in their hunt for funds, found themselves at the doors of debt, a far cry from the equity fundraising that they were used to. The $1.2 billion term loan was raised by Baiju's Alpha, a step subsidiary that was created only to receive the amount. In May, as the company was getting out of headlines of ED rates at its offices, news broke that the lenders had sued Baiju's step-up subsidiary, the Alpha Unit. In an unusual move, Baiju's, which skipped a deadline to repay close to $40 million, sued its lenders in a different court in the United States for predatory practices. Baiju said that in early March, the lenders unlawfully accelerated payment schedules while reports indicated the lenders have raised concerns on the guarantor's agreement as well as the lack of filing that has not been done from Baiju's end, even though a year had passed since the financial year 22 had closed. Baiju's is finding himself facing a worthy opponent, debt. The big question, will this be the death knell for the edtech giant? Salman and I turn to Sriram Somayajula, co-founder and CEO at Indigo Learn right now, but a veteran financial professional. Sridham had penned his thoughts on LinkedIn on why startups, especially Baiju's, don't deserve debt. Hello, Sridham, and welcome to The Morning Brief. Thanks a lot, Anupriya, and thanks a lot, Salman and BG team. Pleasure to be here. What about the Baiju's situation made you raise an eyebrow and bend down your thoughts? One of the things I've been noticing, and I, when I was working with a startup, I interacted with a lot of guys who were you know, willing to lend to startups and, you know, some kind of venture debt as well as we did structured NCDs as well. So one of the things I always felt and always had a vocal discussion with a lot of people in the startup ecosystem is why do startups need debt and how probably debt is not necessarily the right method of mode of financing for startups. And my logic always has been that from given my background in uh, working in a large manufacturing company, debt guys tend to look you know, at the money that they give very differently from the way the equity guys look. When I make this statement, startups are not suited for debt, it's a very generic statement. I'm not taking one specific case or one small amount of money that is raised or, you know, we have to keep in mind this concept called materiality. So, you know, a thousand crore startup raising a one crore loan is very different from, you know, thousand crore startup raising a you know, 500 crore loan. So that perspective has to be always maintained. Given the size of their business, what is the relative size of the debt, debt that they've taken, whether it is worth taking such high levels of debt and so on and so forth. Those were the thoughts that were going into my mind when I you know, wrote this article. Traditionally, people would think that debt would be a normal loan is a, is a better option because you have regular repayments. But you hold a different view because you saying that debt is a far riskier option for startups. Yes, absolutely. I still stand by that view. And the reason is what we traditionally think of, you know, a debt means somebody going, giving us money and then sitting at the sidelines, watching us burn the money is not the way the lender would look at it. So a lender is very conscious of the fact that they've given some money and that money needs to be recovered. So you go out there and splurge that money on whatever you want to do. 
and you don't meet the obligations that you're required to in case of debt, uh, the lender is going to take you to task. So what I fundamentally believe is that person, especially in startup world, when somebody is making an investment into a startup as equity funding, when I say equity or CCPS or whatever it is, basically it's a risk capital. They've literally almost written off that money. It has been considered, uh, you know, in their calculations that this money may not come back. Whereas a lender has a very, very small portion of risk or they account for a very, very small portion of default. Everybody has a different view. You know, you have risky loans, you have non-risky loans, so on and so forth. Risky loans, you have, have higher interest rates, so on and so forth. But typically, there is an expectation that the money will come back. And equity financing, that expectation is not there. You know, the startup doesn't work, this guy will return me my money. That kind of an expectation doesn't exist in VC world. The expectation is, this guy will figure out somehow to make this work and make me feel the rich. Right, that's the expectation. Whereas in case of debt, this guy will figure out how to, you know, make the money, you know, oil the wheels and run the operations, figure out how to get the cash flows and then repay me my money. So you see the very two different thought process of an equity guy versus a debt guy, that is what actually makes the whole debt financing very risky for a startup. See, debt relies on the fact that you have some cash flows which are predictable, which, which can be used to service the debt. A startup is anything but predictable. Startups are all chaos, I mean, at least in the early stages, and you're trying to do a lot of experimentation. When you're trying to do a lot of experimentation, you typically don't take debt money and do experimentation. You take equity money, the guy who knows what the risk for that particular capital is, and then you do experimentation. So there are two things here one has to notice. One is about ability to repay, and second important thing is there is a collateral. If some if shit hits the fan, there is something to recover. You you know go liquidate something and then get you know a dollar, a cent a dollar or whatever it is, few cents a dollar, right? So both the aspects of ability to generate cash flows and willingness to use the cash flows to repay the loan, and in case you know things go south, uh, you have some asset that can actually be liquidated or that can be put on the block and some money be made out of it. Now both these issues actually have you know don't exist for a startup. They may or may not have the ability. See, the goal is to make a lot of money in long run. But debt, you typically don't get a 30-year loan. When you have such kind of loans, you need to generate cash flows very quickly. And startups, at least in the last seven to eight years, uh, Indian startups specifically are in the mode of burning money and not generating money. If you ask me, it's a very gray zone as to why somebody would do things like that. From a lender perspective, obviously, you know, it makes, uh, you know, return and uh, they probably are expecting very high return. And for expecting such a high return, they will tie your hands, legs, you know, they'll put you in a, you know, straight jacket or whatever, whatever they want to do, they will do it. They will ensure that they will put very, very tight covenants. They will, especially if they're international lenders, you cannot imagine the kind of terms that they will add to the, or clauses they will add to the documentation. Other than signing out your life, entire life, everything else will be put in that. This is very serious, especially if it's a smaller entity. But I want to understand a bit more on the risk that is associated because this is A, an overseas loan for them, an overseas debt that they will have to finance. They have actually taken the lenders to court. What is disqualification of a lender if I mean, you've raised a fair amount of debt in your previous uh, and as a founder yourself? How does one disqualify a lender? So actually... There is some amount of things that have to be clarified there. So one thing is typically, you know, you borrow from, let's say, HDFC Bank or a Bajaj Finance or whoever, right? There's no way you can disqualify a lender and say that, you know, I will not pay you. But in Baiju's case, on the face of it, it appears like that. So what I understood was that 
they raised it from a clutch of investors and those investors again further downsold uh, you know debt to somebody else and that somebody else redwood is a distressed debt investor okay so byju's claim apparently could be that you know you've sold my debt to somebody else that somebody else is not qualified or i didn't agree for you to sell it to that chap so that is why they're believing that this is disqualified hence you are a disqualified uh, lender whatever issues that you as a lender redwood is raising i am not bound to answer because first of all you're not supposed to be a lender at all probably this is one way of looking at it you also talk about people who do not take debt but as salman was also talking to me earlier debt as an instrument has started especially after the funding taps have dried out from vcs considerably what are some of the startups that you feel run into face up problems with a debt repayment schedule anybody who's specifically looking for binary outcomes so you know binary outcomes is either it's a hit or it's a you know write off or someone who's not reached out a, a good level of product market fit and achieved a, some amount of scale there is some predictability to the revenues so saas companies could raise because they have a lot of predictability to revenues but then you know it's a two way thing right the people who don't actually require debt are often given debt and people who require debt are not given debt so that is what typically happens even in our personal lives so same way the startups who actually are eligible and who, who have great financials they don't require debt because they have cash the startups who are desperate for debt but they don't deserve the debt specifically because their business is not still set so people in biotech space or pure tech high ip oriented space or you know consumer startups e-commerce startups all these guys they shouldn't take debt but then the point is those people don't need to raise debt at all because you are taking a risk debt is not for taking risk so none of us borrow money and then go and do gambling i'm not equating startups to gambling by the way i'm just saying that you don't take a high risk venture you take for doing something where there is a expectation of cash flow generation and another reason why startups shouldn't take debt is debt calls for lot of servicing and when i say servicing not just the loan servicing i'm information servicing you have to give so many documents you have to constantly monitor certain ratios you have to ensure that your business is operated within those ratios and all of that startup is all about going all guns banging and you know try and figure out the next big thing you don't want to constrain yourself with uh, all these you know limitations that you put on your income statement and balance sheet so debt forces those limitations on your income statement balance sheet and when you are a large organization those limitations can be easily met or when you are a large organization with a small debt those limitations can be easily met but when you are an organization where you know your top line is unknown your bottom line is unknown your net worth is unknown everything is unknown those limitations or covenants actually become a they're literally like nose on your neck they really are very painful to handle shiram a lot of people when they hear the word term loan and all they they don't equate it to be as a pure debt play but it's on nomenclature is it not yes absolutely debt is a debt called no matter by what name it is called a rose is a rose is a rose right a debt is a debt is a loan is a loan is a loan so here again one more point i want to highlight is uh, you know a lot of people take venture debt right this is whole you know there are bunch of people who provide venture there are quite a few players in india uh i won't take names but there are quite a few players but the thing you have to notice with venture debt is none of them give you stand alone debt for a large sum without any equity funding all of them come in along with equity funding you know when there is you have a series a or series b they come along with those guys 3 months before or 3 months after provide you some kind of a bridge financing or provide you some kind of temporary financing 
even there they charge you a good deal and then they convert the debt into equity so technically speaking it is not debt it is some kind of a convertible uh, debt which has some uh, moment you say convertible there is equity portion right moment you say equity they are willing to take risk so you're basically willing to be a equity holder on your cap table so moment that perspective comes in there is no expectation of return of capital but as long as you are a pure debt player right term loan or whatever nomenclature you call it or ncd or whatever you call it you have to repay the money should large tech companies uh, tech startups yeah. from india be looking at term loans that is one yeah. and uh, second even if they want to do a term loan will large institutional investors be willing to participate in those term loans after what's happened with byju's i don't think that there's a straight answer there simply because not just about valuation that matters it is about the cash flows that you have so if there is a large business even if it is not 10 billion even if it is 1 billion but it has steady cash flows you can take a loan which is uh, proportional to the size of the cash flows that you have so let's say you're generating 100 million uh, ebitda or some kind of cash flows every year you probably take a loan which you can service it depending on the dscr kind of ratio what you have if you taking a loan which is let's say 200 million 300 million over a five year six year kind of a thing yes this is definitely possible you should you if somebody is giving you you should take it but then also it comes back to the original question of what are you going to use it for i mean are you going to use it for acquisitions are you going to use it for brand building whatever you going to use it for if that particular experiment fails then what is going to happen how are you going to repay if you have clarity on all of those i don't think the size or whether it is a startup or a non startup makes any uh, difference but the unfortunate reality in indian context is a lot of startups have built businesses based on uh, discounting or some kind of brand building and where the cash flows uh, are not in proportion to the valuation that they have so that is where the problem is so the size doesn't matter the 10 billion or 5 billion doesn't matter it is the cash flow size that matters that they have that is one second question is whether there will uh, be a lack of interest from institutional investors see all these kind of things happened there are always temporary uh, blips so even after 2008 crash people thought that nobody will trade in credit derivatives But then again uh, you know 3 years or 2 years down the line things started back again right so uh, it is it's a very temporary phenomena i don't think that will have any long term impact byju's meanwhile has faced multiple write downs from its 22 billion dollar valuation down to the latest cut to merely 5.1 billion dollars by process the largest non-founder shareholders of byju's but mind it these are write downs byju's has still not faced a down round its last equity funding is still holding it at a 22 billion dollar valuation so before we start scripting the edtech company's epilog salman brings up a street view that invokes some silver lining So as far as I understand, uh, the existing investors and shareholders have full faith in Mr. Bajio because he is not accused of fraudulent practices or financial fraud. There is no evidence of him committing any fraud or you know taking away treasury funds from one place to the other or using funds for his own life expenses. There's no such complaints. It's just that there's been mismanagement and people still trust him. and one of the investors in netec he he told me that it would be devastating to ask a co-founder to step down or especially a ceo to step down when when the company is so large because would then uh, hurt the confidence among the senior management that is vps and avps because they still work under his guidance so it is not really a good decision to ask him to step down so they still back him 
Excessive backing and blind faith till now have backed the unjust valuations. But can it bring Baiju's back from the brink of a debt trap? One thing is for sure, this chapter is definitely going to relay some hard lessons. But the big question, has the educator learned anything? With that, it's a wrap on this episode of The Morning Brief. But follow and subscribe to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Tomorrow, my colleague Mukta Varya will explore why going back to work has forced many out of work. So tune in for that. Meanwhile, from me, Anupra Nair and the team that put this together, from ET Prime, my colleague Salman, Vinay Joshi on production, Indranil Bhattacharjee on sound. Thank you all for listening in and have a great day ahead.